This is the hour of doom. And bloom. <laughs> That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, a gazebo of greatness in a gargantuan world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And a heck of a guy, if I may say so myself, our show is like milk and honey. If by milk and honey, you mean survival and medicine. And where is my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy, nurse practitioner extraordinaire and purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net? Well, the war in Ukraine has people ordering our medical kits so fast, she's in the mystical warehouse of mystery, packing items for loyal customers. So if you get a kit from our store, it might just be personally packed by her. On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, whatever it takes for your family to get ready medically for tough times. But you got to listen to this first, so pay attention. I'm serious. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. Why be prepared? The world's at peace, right? It's not like Russia is invading or anything. But what happens in a disaster when the hospitals and everything else are reduced to rubble and there's nowhere else to turn? Who's going to deal with illness and injury? Well, don't look at me. I don't live in your neighborhood. It's you. So you'd better get off your duff, get some supplies, and learn some stuff. Before we get started, I just want to mention that the new, greatly expanded 4th edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook has stayed high on Amazon book ratings, much higher than I ever expected, that's for sure. If you haven't heard about our greatly expanded new book, well, welcome back from the moon. Check it out on Amazon or go to store.doomandbloom.net. Speaking of hearing, I'd like to talk about ear issues today. How long do you think you'd last when the you-know-what hits the fan if you can't hear the zombies sneaking up on you muttering something about tasty, tasty brains? Well, the ear, let's talk about that, is the organ that controls not only hearing but also controls balance. It's a rare parent who hasn't had to deal with ear problems at one point or another during their life. In some cases, it could be a chronic issue that makes an otherwise healthy child, or even adult, pretty miserable. The most common problem you'll see relating to the ear is pain, usually due to an infection. These are mostly bacterial in nature. Kids are most susceptible, that's for sure. The easiest way to prevent this is by carefully using cotton swabs moistened with rubbing alcohol to dry the ear canal after swimming or excessive sweating. Forceful use of a cotton swab, however, should always be avoided. Trauma may occur that damages internal structures. Normally, you shouldn't place anything in the ear canal sharper than your elbow. That's the advice they give, but it's advice a few people actually follow. The ear is divided into three chambers, the outer, the middle, and the inner ear. The fleshy outer ear that you can tug on, well, that's called the pinna, P-I-N-N-A. The opening in the pinna leads to the external ear canal, the tube that connects the outer ear to the entrance of the middle ear. That entrance is called the tympanic membrane, but you know it as your eardrum. The eardrum is attached to three tiny, 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 tiny bones called the ossicles. These are connected to each other and transmit sound to the inner ear. The inner ear consists of structures like the cochlea, which contains the nerves associated with hearing. It also contains structures like the vestibule and semicircular canals. These control balance. Inflammation of the ear is called otitis. The most common ear infections will be in the external and middle ear chambers. There are several types of otitis with their own signs and symptoms. Let's talk about otitis externa. 
Otitis externa is also known as swimmer's ear, and it's an infection of the outer ear canal most commonly seen in children aged, well, maybe 4 to 14 years old. Cases peak during summer months when most people are going swimming. Bacteria accumulates in water or sweat, and once trapped in the ear canal, inflammation and discomfort can ensue. Other causes can be due to inflammation from skin conditions like dermatitis and allergies. Symptoms of otitis externa include earache, the pain is worsened by pulling on the pinna or outside of the ear, itching, a ringing, roaring, or buzzing in the ears, that's called tinnitus, decreased hearing, a full sensation in the ear canal, feel like something is there, with swelling and redness, and possibly thick drainage from the ear. Standard treatment may include a warm compress to the ear to help with pain control, an antibiotic and steroidal eardrop combo like tobramycin and dexamethasone, that's called Toberdex brand name, that might be useful and should be applied for five to seven days. In order to get the most effect from the medicine, you want to place the drops in the ear when the patient is lying on their side. They should stay in that position for five minutes to completely coat the ear canal. If eardrops aren't available, Oral antibiotics may be used, although honestly they're reserved in normal times for severe cases that spread beyond the canal itself. Preventive strategies include use of earplugs while swimming, uh, hair blowers or hair dryers on low settings, and hair head tilting to remove water from the ear canal. Make sure you discourage people from scratching the area that can cause it to get worse. A popular natural remedy for otitis externa is a 50-50 mix of apple cider vinegar and rubbing alcohol. Rubbing alcohol helps evaporate water that's trapped in the canal, and the acidity of the vinegar decreases bacteria. Place three or four drops in the ear, wait five minutes before allowing to drain, off, drain out. This is also a preventive strategy for people with frequent infections. Okay, so that's otitis externa. The most common cause of earache, actually, is an infection of the middle ear. That's called otitis media. Normally, the eardrum is shiny and pearly gray in appearance. When there's an infection in the middle ear canal, the eardrum will appear dull when examined with an otoscope, a special instrument used to take a look at the ear. This is because there is pus or inflammatory fluid behind the eardrum. The resulting pressure is what causes the pain. Standard treatment for otitis often includes oral antibiotics like amoxicillin, plus pain meds like ibuprofen, and, well, there are also eardrops that are a combination pain med and anesthetic. They exist. There's an option for you as well. Otitis media is most common in infants and toddlers. This is why mothers are always cautioned against bottle or breastfeeding with their baby lying flat. You can expect otitis media to present with one or more of the following symptoms. Pain, as I mentioned, more so in lying down, difficulty sleeping, crying and irritability in infants, fever, loss of appetite, sometimes loss of balance, holding or pulling on the effective ear, affected ear. If you have an infant, they may not be able to tell you that their ear hurts, but they may do that. There may be drainage of fluid from the affected ear, and they may have difficulty hearing from the affected ear. High-dose amoxicillin, that's the antibiotic of choice, and you can find it in a fish version as Aquamox. Uh, in children, use 80 to 90 milligrams per kilogram per day in two divided doses for about 10 days. That should be effective in infants that are about 6 to 23 months. Five to seven days of treatment is usually enough in children over two years of age. In penicillin allergies, they use clindamycin, 30 to 40 milligrams per kilogram per day in three divided doses. That's an option for you as well. It should be noted that some pediatricians treat with antibiotics only in prolonged or, or severe cases, for example, when there is a high fever. 
As an alternative, adults may be given things like a Z-Pack, azithromycin, 250 milligrams orally, twice on the first day of therapy, followed by one tablet daily for four days. Sometimes otitis is caused by a viral infection. If that's the case, it's not going to be cured with antibiotics, but should resolve on its own over time. Some pediatricians now adopt a wait-and-see attitude for two or three days before prescribing them. After all, they're drugs. They can always have side effects or, or allergies. Uh, a number of natural remedies are available. Although none are fully proven to be effective, some options include, one, a mix of rubbing alcohol and vinegar in equal quantities, or alternatively, 3% hydrogen peroxide. You'd place three or four drops into the affected ear, wait five minutes, then tilt the head to drain out the mixture. You could also use plain warm olive oil or make a mixture adding one drop of certain essential oils like uh, tea tree oil, eucalyptus, peppermint, thyme, lavender, garlic, or even mullein. Warm the oil slightly, place two or three drops into the ear canal. This does not actually have to be drained or removed unless it's desired. Most people will want to do it though. Uh, a cotton ball with two or three drops of eucalyptus oil may be secured to the ear opening while you're sleeping. That's something that you could use. Or you can use a mild heat source to the area. Off the grid, you'd maybe dip a sock or other absorbent material into some heated water. You'd wring it out and place it on the outside of the affected ear. We've talked about the outer ear canal and the middle ear. What about the inner ear? Inflammation here causes something, causes something called otitis interna. Inner ear canal issues often cause vertigo. This differs from lightheadedness due to motion sickness, where a person may feel off balance due to riding in a car, boat, or plane. In these cases, simply focusing on the horizon or a simple antihistamine like Benadryl, diphenhydramine, uh, 25 milligrams, 50 milligrams orally will help. Be aware there may be a sedative effect using this stuff in some people. Meclizine, 12.5 milligrams orally, may also be useful for motion sickness or even vertigo. It could be used for true vertigo. True vertigo involves a feeling of rotational motion. In other words, the room is spinning, and that's even when the person is sitting perfectly still. Sometimes these patients feel nauseous as well. Amoxicillin 500 milligrams three times a day for seven days in adults may be an appropriate antibiotic therapy if there is an infection related to these cases. Of course, antibiotics work on bacteria, not viruses. So, well, there may be some infections that might be viral. In someone who's got vertigo, you really want to determine which middle ear or inner ear is affected. There's a way to do this using certain maneuvers. What you would do is have the patient sit so that when they lie down, their head would hang slightly over the end of the bed or table, wherever you got them. Then you would turn the patient's head to the right and have them lie back quickly. If the symptoms worsen within a minute or so, the right ear is affected. If no dizziness occur, have the patient sit up, wait a minute or so, then turn the patient's head to the left and have them lie back quickly. If the symptoms worsen after a minute or so, the left ear is affected. Treatment for vertigo involves having the patient lie still in a dark, quiet room. This tends to decrease nausea and reduces the sensation of spinning. Oftentimes, vertigo will go away by itself after a short time, but certain oral medications may be used for prolonged episodes. They are meclizine, otherwise known as antivert, that's 12.5 milligrams to 50 milligrams orally every four to eight hours. That's non-prescription. Another non-prescription drug is dimenhydrinate, that's Dramamine, 25 to 100 milligrams orally every four to eight hours. Now, prescription stuff, diazepam, Valium is used, two to 10 milligrams orally every 48 hours. Ativan, lorazepam, 
that's used 0.5 to 2 milligrams orally every 4 to 8 hours. And Reglan metoclopramide, 5 to 10 milligrams orally every 6 hours may be used. Reglan can cause some pretty serious side effects, so be sure that you're aware of that. All of these have uh, their own set of possible side effects, honestly, and you can look these all up at drugs.com. What if you don't have these meds? A low-tech therapy for vertigo is called the Epley Maneuver. Let's see. Uh, you determine from the previous maneuver that the problem is on the right side. Have your patient, in this case, sit on a bed or a long table, have a pillow in place so that their shoulders will rest on it when they lie back. You would turn their head 45 degrees to the right, then lie down quickly, keeping the head turned and slightly extended, chin up in other words. Wait 30 seconds. This may freak them out a little bit, honestly, but encourage them to be patient. Turn their head about 90 degrees to the left without raising it. They now should be looking 45 degrees to the left. Wait another 30 seconds. Then turn their head and body another 90 degrees to the left. Now the face, now they're facing into the bed. Wait another 30 seconds. Then sit up on the left side of the bed. If vertigo is related to the left ear, well, the process is reversed. So you turn their head 45 degrees to the left, have them lie down quickly, keeping the head turned and slightly extended, chin up, wait 30 seconds, turn their head 90 degrees to the right without raising it. They now should be looking 45 degrees to the right, wait another 30 seconds, turn their head and body another 90 degrees. Now they're into the bed again. Wait another 30 seconds and sit up on the right side of the bed. Amoxicillin, by the way, 500 milligrams three times a day for seven days in adults is an appropriate antibiotic therapy if there is a bacteria infection that is causing the problem. Now, using an otoscope, let's talk a little bit about, about that. I mentioned that an otoscope is an instrument to look into the ear canal. Evaluation of the ear canal and the eardrum is performed with this special instrument. It's a useful little tool for the survival medic. You really should have one. Now, how do you use it? First, always hold the otoscope in the left hand if you're looking in the left ear and the right hand if you're looking in the right ear. Hold the otoscope like you would hold a hammer. That seems to be be uh, work best, honestly. It works best for me as it allows you to gently rest your knuckles against the side of the patient's head so you don't poke too deep. Alternatively, you could hold the otoscope like you would hold a pencil. I find this uncomfortable myself, but different strokes for different folks. Uh, the external ear canal is about two to five centimeters. That's one or two inches long in adults. They're shorter in kids. In children, it's pretty straight, but in adults, it isn't. So you need to pull the top of the ear upwards and backwards to get a better view of the eardrum. If you're using the otoscope on a child, always start by explaining the process because it may feel weird to them. Let them know it might feel weird, but it, that it shouldn't hurt. Choose an otoscope and attachment that's about the right size. That attachment's called a speculum for a child. They often come in sets of several different sizes. It's rare for both ears to be affected, so examine the ear that doesn't hurt first. This will allow you to see what the anatomy should look like. It also pre will prevent an otoscope used on an infected ear from transferring the infection to the healthy side. Be sure to have the light as high intensity if you can. You'll first see the external ear canal wall. Is there redness or swelling compared to the normal ear? Is there debris, excessive wax, foreign objects? Don't be surprised if you see small hairs. That's actually normal. Now look for the eardrum at the end of the canal. A normal eardrum appears pearly gray, it's shiny, it's translucent. If there's a dull yellowish color, that usually indicates that there's some fluid behind. That's a classic sign of infection, middle ear infection. In the worst cases, the eardrum will appear to bulge out towards you due to pressure from within. Now one of the ear issues you may see through the otoscope is actually a ruptured eardrum. 
Infection is the most common cause. Pressure from pus and inflammatory fluid builds up, and when it's too great, it perforates right through the tympanic membrane. When this happens, the severe pain gets better, actually, and pus begins to drain from the ear. The patient will still complain of discomfort in the affected ear, and hearing indeed may be damaged long-term in some people. I mentioned cotton swabs before. Trauma from aggressive use of a cotton swab and rapid changes in atmospheric or water pressure may also rupture the eardrum, so it can loud explosions, gunshot blasts, things like that. The pain in these cases is usually more sudden than with infection. Besides ear discomfort, other symptoms can include drainage from the ear. I mentioned it may look like pus. It could be bloody. could appear clear. Uh, ear, nose, no, ear noise or buzzing, uh, hearing loss that may be partial or complete, even in the affected ear, and dizziness. Examination with the otoscope should reveal an obvious hole or rip in the tympanic membrane in this case. If you don't have an otoscope, have the patient forcefully blow their nose while pinching their nostrils. If the eardrum is perforated, air fills a space in the middle ear. Normally, this would cause an intact eardrum to balloon outward a little bit. If there's a hole, however, air rushes out of the ear instead. Most hearing loss from a ruptured eardrum is temporary, will resolve when the injury heals, but it takes about three months or so. If due to otitis media, antibiotics are appropriate as the cause is often bacterial. Pain relief options include ibuprofen, acetaminophen, warmth in the form of compresses if applied to the affected ear. Uh, hearing loss, by the way, doesn't require infection or trauma. Over time, it's common among firearms enthusiasts, even without rupture. This is especially true on the side from which they shoot and underscores the importance of hearing protection on the gun range. If you're not wearing ear protection, you might be damaging your hearing. No specific treatment is needed for traumatic ruptures that are not related for infection to infection. Let's talk about foreign objects. You could cause a blockage with your own homemade foreign object that's called earwax. Earwax is also known as cerumen. It's a common problem and a chronic problem for many patients. Cerumen is normal, however, it's protective in healthy ears. It traps dust particles before they can reach the actual eardrum. On occasion, a foreign object may cause a blockage, though. Normally, people use cotton swabs to remove earwax, but this method often pushes the earwax further in. Cleaning the opening of the ear canal with a twisted, moist washcloth is probably safer. When, for whatever reason, the cerumen is lodged against the eardrum, it can cause hearing loss. Other symptoms could be earache, a full feeling in the ear, itching, or an odor or discharge. Some people also get ringing in the ear that's called tinnitus. Commercial ear rinses with special syringes, they're available for treatment, but simple household items can also be used as home remedies. One is baking soda. Dissolve a half teaspoon of baking soda in two ounces of warm water, fill an eyedropper, and with the head tilted, gently place 10 drops of the solution in your ear. Leave it there for an hour and then flush with warm water from a bulb syringe. Perform this about once daily until the earwax clears up, but don't do this for more than about two weeks. Another one that you shouldn't do for more than two weeks is hydrogen peroxide. You can use hydrogen peroxide 3% using the same method I just mentioned, except you want to remove it after about five minutes. This is done daily as needed, and, but again, like baking soda, never more than two weeks. Uh, some oils are an option, mineral oil, olive oil, coconut, glycerin, baby oil. This can soften earwax or float out maybe an insect or another foreign object. Using an eyedropper, eye you'll tilt the patient's head, place a few drops in the ear canal. You can warm the oil slightly, but make sure it is not hot. Remove it after five minutes, then irrigate with some warm water from a bulb syringe. You, replace, you can repeat that once or twice daily. should be noticed that sometimes 
gentle irrigation alone with just slightly warm water may work for loose small objects like sand, dirt, or a small insect. You would fill the syringe with warm, again not hot water, hold a basin under the ear to catch the runoff, and inject a stream of about maybe 30 milliliters of water using some moderate pressure. Pain on irrigation could be a sign of a perforated eardrum, however. If this happens, abort the procedure. Be aware that seeds or other plant matter in the ear will swell when wet, should not be irrigated. Blunt-edged tweezers can be used gently for removal using an otoscope or a headlamp for better visualization. Be very, very careful. Hey, I'll bet you have a natural remedy or two to share. I want you to make sure to send me an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Let me know. If you have topics you want me to cover in future podcasts, let me know that too. Well, let's talk a little bit before I'm done with this. Let's talk a little bit about ringing in the ears. When you hear ringing in your ears, it's called tinnitus. Tinnitus affects about 20% of the population. Actually, I have it. Risk factors include a male gender, advanced age. Well, there you go. Uh, Smoking, alcohol use, not so much for me. Uh, Previous hearing loss and certain medical problems like high blood pressure, obesity, and heart disease. Workers that are in high noise environments, well, they also experience tinnitus. In tinnitus, it's thought that tiny hairs inside the inner ear are become damaged and they emit electrical impulses the brain interprets as ringing, although roaring, clicking, other sounds are sometimes heard. Head trauma, ear infections, buildup of wax, well, these are some other possible causes. Medications known to cause tinnitus include certain antibiotics, diuretics, antidepressants, even ibuprofen will do it. For most, tinnitus is just an annoyance, but other people notice a significant worsening in their quality of life. Sleeping difficulties, depression, anxiety, trouble concentrating, headaches, just some of the possible issues you might hear from your patients. Evaluation with an otoscope can identify earwax blockage or an infection, but for most, decreasing the noise in the environment, sometimes changing medications is more likely to help. Older patients, sadly, well, they may just have hearing problems because, well, they're older. A masking device like a hearing aid is sometimes used to emit more pleasing sounds as part of what they call tinnitus retraining therapy, or TRT. Counseling to help the patient habituate to the ringing, that might help. People commonly get used to certain environmental noises, right, like air conditioning. So it's thought that teaching people to mentally filter out the ringing, well, as something unimportant, that might help their quality of life. In any case, the medic should recommend that group members with this problem have a full evaluation by professionals before... Before a disaster occurs, a good idea with just about any medical issue. I guess I should mention TMJ pain uh, very quickly. Uh, Pain in the area of the ear may also be caused by inflammation of the joint that connects the lower jaw, called the mandible, to the rest of the skull. This joint can be felt just in front of the ear on either side. Patients with TMJ often lose range of motion, can't open their mouths widely without pain. Pressing on the area can be very uncomfortable. A pop or a click is often noted if you examine the patient. This appears to worsen when the mouth opens widely. Treatment is with warm compresses, a soft diet, oral uh, NSAIDs like ibuprofen. Some believe that wearing a bite block like a large rubber eraser for periods of time, that might help by easing the bone back into a normal joint position. Haven't tried it on anyone, don't know if it's true, honestly. Uh, massaging the neck and head muscles to control tension radiating from the TMJ, that might help. Some people believe in ice packs to the affected area. And, well, there are just a number of different ways that you can treat it. We'll go into that some other time. And now a word from our sponsor. This show is sponsored by Possums. Possums, those beautiful marsupials who you'd think would spell their name starting with a P, but it's really an O. 
Get one for your home and get some real use out of those rabies shots you keep in that old refrigerator in the woodshed. Oh, possum. Hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like me to address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Plus, the co-author of the fourth edition, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Chuck, who writes, I have IBS, that's irritable bowel syndrome, and am tired as hell of dealing with it. Is there a way to cure, mitigate it, lessen the effects? Details. I'm a long-time sufferer of IBS. Doctors can't seem to find a reason or cause. I can't say if it's IBS-C, IBS-D, or some combination thereof. I'll explain these in a few minutes. Uh, had colonoscopies, GI with contrast, barium enemas, name the tests, I may have done it. The doctors tried to blame alcohol, but when I do test my symptoms by going zero alcohol, the symptoms persist as usual, little or no change. Cannabis helps as in the pain mitigation and depression mitigation. Yes, one can become very depressed due to IBS. Perpetual stomach pain causes ambition levels to drop. I often lose two to three days of getting stuff done because I'm sitting around with an achy stomach. There is a family history. Mother died at 45 after years of colitis from septic shock. Father, sister, and I all have diverticulosis. Both my sister and father almost died from intestinal ruptures and septic shock within the last 15 years. Luckily, both did survive. I have cut out coffee, six years clean at this point. It helped some, but stopping coffee didn't cure me. I have also experimented with zero alcohol. Uh, he mentioned that. Uh, no major change, but that seems to be all my doctors want to discuss. That and my liver. The plus size is less alcohol helped me lose weight and saves money too, so I'm okay with less alcohol. My liver is a little fatty, which also can be caused by being overweight and not just alcohol use. I am moderately overweight at just under 200 pounds at five foot seven. I have recently lost some. I've almost been as heavy as 230. I have been as light as 160. Weight seems to not affect the issue much. I do plan to continue with weight loss with an ultimate goal of 160, which is appropriate for my height. I did have a stressful job, but I've been retired for five years now. Frankly, my life doesn't have much stress. It's not stress-related, in my opinion. I'm at my wit's end. I have to plan trips outside my home with a bathroom in mind. I'm lucky in that I retired young although the symptoms were there even before I retired. But I'd like to not spend my retirement on the toilet. I'd love to have even a week of remission from this. Any help or suggestions would be appreciated. Chuck, I'm so sorry you're dealing with this issue, and it's a tough nut to crack. What is IBS? Irritable bowel syndrome is a common disorder seen in about 10% of the population that affects the large intestine. Signs and symptoms include cramping, abdominal pain, bloating, gas, diarrhea, or constipation, or both. IBS is a chronic condition and usually needs long-term follow-up. Your family history, stressful work, diverticulosis, and other factors put you at high risk for it. Patients generally appear to be healthy. An examination of the abdomen may reveal tenderness, particularly in the left lower quadrant, and nothing more. This leads doctors to fall back on advice like stop your bad habits, lose weight, eat healthy, and don't drink or smoke, etc. Of course, if you were drinking enough alcohol to make you obese, some of that advice is not really a bad thing, especially if your liver isn't in great shape. There are three types of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. They include IBS-C, 
That's IBS constipation. This comes with stomach pain and discomfort, bloating, abnormally delayed or infrequent bowel movements, and lumpy hard stools. Then there's IBSD, IBS diarrhea. This comes with stomach pain and discomfort, an urgent need to move your bowels, abnormally frequent bowel movements, or loose watery stool. And then there's IBS mixed, which might be your case, which has both constipation and diarrhea. Patients may have symptoms of abnormal stool passage like straining, urgency, feeling of incomplete evacuation. They could pass mucus or complain of bloating or abdominal distension in general. The diagnosis is made using what's known as the ROME, R-O-M-E, criteria. The ROME criteria requires the presence of abdominal pain for at least one day a week for the last three months, along with at least two of the following, pain related to defecation, pain associated with the change in frequency of defecation, and pain pain associated with the change in consistency of stool. Chuck, your doctors can't find a cause because no one has, at least so far, the cause of irritable bowel syndrome is unknown. It tends to begin in late teen or early adult years and has periods where pain and GI disturbances are less and some where there's more. Diet, medication, hormones, or stress may trigger or worsen the symptoms. Historically, the disorder was often considered to be purely psychosomatic. This is because some patients with IBS seem to have something called an aberrant illness behavior. That is, they expressed emotional conflict as a gastrointestinal complaint, usually abdominal pain. As we learn more, IBS may be better understood as a combination of factors. One I strongly believe in is a major factor, what I call intestinal hyperalgesia. That means hypersensitivity to even relatively normal intestinal movement and gas. People experience pain as individuals with the same injury causing more pain in some than others. I believe this is because of a hypersensitive pathway from the brain to the pain fibers or maybe the other way around. Some people have more pain due to an as yet uncertain abnormality in the nerve supply of the intestines. That's my belief. In IBS, patients who have had an intestinal infection like diverticulitis a state of low-grade inflammation may exist as a factor. And also, maybe there is an autoimmune response affecting the nerves that might be at work in some patients. Other people are just plain misdiagnosed. Mild diverticulitis, for example, can be confused with IBS in some patients. That could possibly be happening in your situation. IBS can also be mimicked by conditions such as lactose intolerance, drug-induced diarrhea, symptoms after gallbladder surgery, laxative overuse, parasitic diseases like giardiasis, gastritis, colitis, enteritis, all sorts of stuff. Early inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis may also be involved. In those with constipation, hypothyroidism is a possibility, and women, ovarian cysts, or fibroids may play a role. In any case, all these should not be ruled out before deciding the patient has IBS. So full diagnostic testing like you had, Chuck, is a good idea, especially in those who have had first onset at old age, have fever, unintended weight loss, rectal bleeding, or vomiting. There may be something else going on. Strategies for treatment, close monitoring of diet to avoid gas-producing and diarrhea or constipation-producing foods may help. This diet is known as FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, and eliminates a lot of possible triggers that worsen IBS symptoms. Probiotics may improve symptoms and decrease bloating and gas. There should be an appropriate fiber intake like psyllium and hydration for the current situation a person is dealing with in terms of their IBS and drug therapy to deal with the dominant symptoms of the time, understanding that these may be on and off. Antispasmodic medicines like hyoscyamine 
taken before meals might be helpful. Others have tried treating with medications used for ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. Of course, Imodium is an option for occasional use for diarrheal episodes, and laxatives and other chronic constipation meds may help for episodes of constipation. Luxadiline is useful for diarrhea-related IBS as it slows down the motion of the gut and thus the discomfort associated with intestinal contractions. Unfortunately, this last drug is not for those with a history of significant alcohol use. From a supplement standpoint, some recommend L-glutamine. In an eight-week study published online in May 2019 in the journal called Gut, those who took oral glutamine supplements safely reduced all major IBS-related symptoms. Commercially available combination supplements like Aberogast I-B-E-R-O-G-A-S-T, claims to help with IBS. Peppermint oil and ginger are old remedies that may help with GI issues in general. From a psychological standpoint, hypnotherapy and acupuncture have been used with some success, certainly worth a shot, and some people swear by yoga, meditation, and mindfulness. From a psych drug standpoint, tricyclic antidepressants have been used not just for their effect on depression, but because they have an effect against nerve origin pain. Like I said, Chuck, IBS is a tough nut to crack, but some of the things I mentioned might be options you haven't yet explored. Best of luck. I'm rooting for you. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.